Good morning, Cross Point downtown again. Um, we are continuing our series entitled Jesus is Greater through the book of Hebrews. And so if you're new to Cross Point downtown, uh, we typically study books of the Bible going verse by verse because we believe that the, the word of God is the full counsel of God. And so we want to allow his word to speak to us in its entirety. Uh, so we will often pick books of the Bible and take a while to get through them. So the book of Hebrews we plan on to be in through uh, next summer, uh, be towards the beginning of next summer, and we'll be navigating this book together. And I hope if you've never done a study in the book of Bible and have studied it verse by verse, I hope that God would so stir your heart to do this because I do believe that you will benefit immensely from it, allowing the Word of God to saturate you in the things that you want to tend to skip over, you're not allowed to. Uh, the things that I want to tend to skip over here as a pastor, I'm not allowed to. In fact, this morning we're talking about angels, and maybe you're thinking, what do angels have to do with my life? It'd be real easy to skip over this passage, but yet I think we're going to find that all of the words of God is relevant for our life Today, So that leads me to ask you the, the question um, and, and to set this up for us. And how do we then approach a book study of the Bible? Uh, and so there are, there are two ways not to and one way to. Actually, there are probably many ways not to, but let me give you a couple. One is we don't study like cold scholars. We don't study like cold scholars. We're not up in an ivory tower filling our heads with knowledge so that we can be prideful and arrogant about the word of God. But we actually study the Bible so that it would humble us because it ministers to our heart and we need it. The word of God doesn't make us prideful, cold scholars, but we are a humble, reliant people upon his word. Number two, we don't study like casual admirers. We don't look at the word of God from a distance and say that there's some good facts that are in there that that I could have for my life or I can take this piece and this piece and it means something for me today but but we believe that the word of God is meant to transform our hearts and so we absorb it we soak it all in that it has a present reality that God wants to do through his word in my life today so I don't stand far off casually admiring it but I want to come up close so we come as committed soldiers this is the way we are to come, like committed soldiers, believing that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow, that it's meant to train us in righteousness, that there is a present work that God wants to do in us now, whether we are in furlough or in the thick of war, the book of Hebrews is a friend for the battle. And so we come committed to King Jesus. And we're committed soldiers because we have a good king. We don't have to question his character and integrity. We know that King Jesus is a good commander. And so we are going to be his committed people that honor him and love him and worship him and do his will. Let's pray. Father, that we would become these people. Chances are, Lord, um, if this congregation is at all like me, we're, we're all far from this. I know this for myself. And so, Lord, we ask that you bring us close and you make us, God, the people you want us to be. This royal priesthood, holy in your sight because of the work given through Christ 
on the cross. In Jesus' name, the church says, Amen. Angelology. What do we believe about angels? I'm going to do a a few minute introduction to angels because they come up here right smack dab in the front of the book of Hebrews. And chances are we all need a little bit of a little bit of exercise in what what the Bible tells us about angels. And so uh, uh, as we study the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that Jesus is greater than all things. And there's much that the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is greater than. And, and the author begins to unpack in the first three verses why Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater because he is the one who has inherited the name that's above all names. Jesus is greater because he is the one with whom the world was created. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. And it leads to this thesis statement, if you will, in verse 4, that Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than angels. And so, what do we know about angels from the Bible? Well, angels are biblical. Uh, Angels, we find in the Bible, in 34 of the 66 of the books of the Bible. So, over half of the books of the Bible reference angels. They're mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, and over 160 times in the New Testament, leading to about... Uh, 275 references to angels in the Bible. We know that God created angels. Angels were created by God. The only one who is eternally existent is God. Past, present, future, God has no starting point. Angels have a starting point. And their starting point is when God said it started. And God made them. And so they're created by God. We, we know that there was an angel rebellion that took place led by Lucifer in the book of Job. We see that there's an angel rebellion. Lucifer, we know, is Satan. And Satan turned his back on God because he wanted to be like God. And he led an angel rebellion. And those angels that rebelled against God were condemned to damnation in hell forever. And the, those angels that were a part of that rebellion are now called demons. And they have turn their back on God and continue to sway mankind to not trust in the Lord, but to trust in anything else because they want Satan to be the king. And so this is what we know about angels. What are angels like? We have to be careful that we don't give angels, uh, we don't ascribe to angels attributes that they don't have. Uh, Number one, angels are not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. or Yeah, they're not all-knowing. They are intelligent. They experience emotion. They even exercise their wills, meaning they're not mindless robots. But they're not omniscient. They don't know all things. Number two, they're not omnipresent. Angels can't be in two places at one time. They can't be in all places at once. Demons as well. Uh, Satan himself as well. They're limited by time and space. They're spirit beings, meaning they're immaterial. They have no flesh and bones. And although they have appeared biblically in the form of humans, they are that way so that we can have a concept of God. We see that angels have appeared various times through the scriptures in the form of humans. Uh, They are not omnipotent, meaning that they're not all powerful. While they are incredibly powerful, their power is limited. In 2 Kings, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians. An angel entered the locked prison in the book of Acts to release the apostle Peter. 
And the stone over Jesus' grave was rolled away by an angel. So then what do angels then do? Well, we see that the primary role of an angel and responsibility of an angel is to worship. They're created to worship. Isaiah 6, we see the heavenly hosts surrounding the throne of God and among them are angels worshiping him. Revelation 4 and 5 is the multitudes of angels worshiping King Jesus. They also give guidance and direction. This is not to be confused with your own personal guardian angel. I don't believe that that's entirely biblical, but angels do give guidance and direction. We see that an angel guided Israel in the wilderness and that angels appeared to the prophets in order to give them the message of God so that they could tell God's people. And angels also guard and protect. Spiritual warfare exists. And within the heavenly places and the heavenly realms, even right now, the angel armies are doing the bidding of God within the spiritual forces that are present around us. And within that, there's a multitude of angels. We don't know how many. Angels are in armies or hosts or legions. Jesus commanded 12 legions of angels at his crucifixion. So we know that there's at least 72,000 angels. 6,000 in a legion times 12. And I believe that that's just a small number of the amount of angels that God has created. And so, why do we bring this up? Because it was an issue for the people that the author of Hebrews was writing to. Last week I told you we don't know a lot about who the audience was for the author of Hebrews. We don't even know the author. But we have some clues from the text that give us an understanding of who the audience is. And then also, while we don't know definitively who the author is, we know that the author of Hebrews was very knowledgeable about the Old Testament. And they used the Old Testament to persuade these Hebrews that Jesus Christ was Lord of all. And so we know that the audience was, in all likelihood, Jewish Christians. Jews who had converted to Christianity that had never seen Jesus, but yet believed in Him. And we also can read that there were some difficulties that were arising from the circumstances that they were in of persecution, of trouble. That their faith was beginning to be costly. In fact, one author says that the people of the book of Hebrews, their world was falling apart. Have you ever had your world fall apart and and really wondered where Jesus was? God, where are you in the midst of this? There's a lot of people in that place today. Not only in this room, which I'm sure we are in some way, shape or form, but also around the world. God, where are you in the midst of this? And the author of Hebrews says, well, listen, Jesus is greater than all things. And this must be central to your whole belief system about God and the world and the world around you that Jesus is greater. And so it's believed that these Jewish Christians were placing an undue prominence or place of angels above that of Jesus Christ. 
I think that's a pretty safe assumption, that they were saying that somehow these angels had attributes or even were greater than God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews writes this to bring correction to that. And so why would they believe this? And it, it, it could be for a couple of reasons. One, the Jewish Christians of that time period really placed a high value on the law of God, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. And we know that biblically, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses were delivered to him by angels. Angels were a part of that. And so angels as messengers of God are given a place of prominence in the thought system and belief system of the Jew in that time period. And they're bringing that with them into their Christianity, which I don't think is a bad thing, but it has to have its proper place under the person and work of Jesus Christ. Or maybe this Jesus was not the son of God. Maybe this Jesus was a mere angel. Because they acknowledged that he was a prophet. They acknowledged his message as divine. But yet maybe he was not the divine son of God. Maybe he was a messenger. And uh, maybe he, Jesus Christ, was just a very powerful angel himself. Now some of these thoughts would have been convenient for the time period as well. Because we know this church was adrift. And the way that this church was drifting was slowly, slowly and subtly in that the author is bringing them back to what matters most, which is Christ. And that going adrift would mean that we deny Jesus in some way, shape or form as being who he says he is. That's what it really means to go adrift in our hearts. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, we say that the author warns the church against an unbelieving heart. That going adrift means this denial of Christ. And so you've got to think with me conceptually, uh, contextually about the Jewish Christians in that time. They've, they've been ostracized from their Jewish community, meaning they, they can't go and worship in the temple anymore if Jesus is their Lord, if they're a Christian. And so it would be easy to deny him and, and be embraced by the people who they've loved and grown up with and that they were ostracized from that community. It would be easier to deny Christ than affirm him. That if Jesus was a mere angel, then they wouldn't have to outright deny him, but they could somehow affirm him. But the author of Hebrews says, no, the affirmation of Christianity, the affirmation of the gospel has Jesus right smack it dab in the middle on his throne. And he's got that place or he's got no place. And that's where the author is taking us today. No angel sits where Jesus does. And we see this in verse 4 and 5. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So to, to which of the angels has God ever ascribed the name as son? That's what the author of Hebrews is asking very rhetorically. And I, I find it very interesting that he is using the Old Testament in order to do so. 
Notice that. He doesn't, he doesn't take anything outside of what these people know and believe. He's taking what they know and they believe to affirm the truth of the gospel. So many people think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are different books. No, it's one book. It's God's word. It's one book and it affirms, the Old Testament affirms the New Testament. The New Testament affirms the Old Testament. You, you can't have one without the other. The Old Testament is the promise given. The New Testament is the promise fulfilled. And so the, the author of Hebrews is using the Psalms in particular here as a way of affirming the, the sonship of Jesus Christ, that he is in fact the Messiah. That he wasn't a mere man, but this is the Son of God. And the Son of God is the name that's not given to any angel, but is given to Christ. And when we call Jesus Christ the Son of God, we're not merely calling him God's descendant. We're calling him God himself. You see that Jesus is eternal. God the Father is the author of salvation. We call Jesus God the Son because he's the one that accomplished salvation. He is the one who came and dwelt among us in human form, in flesh. He is the incarnate Son of God. But he has no beginning and he has no end. So when the, when the author of Hebrews says that he inherited this name, he's not saying that Jesus somehow was given this name later on. He has already always had this name. He has always had this name. But what the author of Hebrews references is the work of God in Christ Jesus at his exaltation after the resurrection. The Son of God who inherited the name is heir it was made public at the resurrection. That Jesus Christ would have to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But it was made visible to us and to all the world that he is in fact the Messiah to his disciples as well. They didn't get this until they saw Jesus raised from the grave. And when he rose from that grave on the third day, he was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. And that name that he has always held as son of God was made public where God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. No angel did that. There's no angel that did that. There's no angel that carries that name. And... We see that in Luke 32 through 33 that this was the plan of Christ from day one. As there was an angel that delivered this message. He will be great. and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And we see in Philippians chapter 2, as the Apostle Paul affirms this message, he says, Have this in mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, to glorify, to confess that Jesus Christ is God, is to in fact confess that God is one. That there is no division in Him. That God the Father is God the Son and God the Spirit. They have God in the work and scope of the Trinity is unified. And together, in the Lordship of who God is, He is accomplishing His plan and purpose in us. And through Christ, through Christ is given the name that is above all names. Later on here, we see from the book of Hebrews in verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The, the title firstborn is one that the Jews would have been able to realize as a place of prominence, as a place of importance in a household. Because the firstborn son was given the inheritance of the father and they also were given the responsibility. And so Jesus Christ carries not just the inheritance of God, but the responsibility of God. Meaning that Jesus gets all the stuff of God. He has everything in his hands. That in, that in him are all things and they all hold together in him. But he also has the responsibility of God. And with this responsibility of God, he is given the honor of God. And so there's a greater honor in Jesus Christ. So why is Jesus greater than angels? Number one, he has a greater name. And number two, he has a greater honor. And the greater honor means that the angels don't worship themselves. See, see, there's no angels that are worshiping other angels unless they're demons and they're fallen angels. No, but the angels of God worship God the Son. They bow down before him. There is no angel that's worshiped by the others. And that Jesus Christ does not worship angels. Angels worship him. And he's given a greater honor. When I did jury duty not too long ago, I went into the courtroom. Anybody ever done jury duty? And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of nightmarish a little bit, uh, but it's kind of fun too. It's kind of weird. It's like, it's a nightmare, but you know, do I want to get picked or do I want to get picked? You know, that kind of deal. Like, this might be fun, but it's going to take like a whole three months. So maybe not. Anyway, so I did jury duty and uh, went into the courtroom. And, and when the honorable judge came in, they said, please rise and stand for honorable judge so-and-so. And we all stood because this judge who presided over the courtroom is responsible for executing the law of our land. And so it is a very honorable place that this judge stands and so stands in, and so we should recognize that. While at the same time that the judge is honorable, Jesus Christ is the judge of God and worthy of a greater honor. He's worthy of our worship. There is no judge here on earth that's worthy of our worship. They are worthy of our honor, but they are not worthy of the honor that is of the greatest esteem, the honor of God's Son, Jesus Christ. They're worthy of our worship. And we see that 
In Revelation, these angels encircle the throne, thousands upon thousands. They say with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That Jesus is worthy of their praise. He is worthy of a greater honor. We see that these angels serve Jesus. They're, they're not just worshipers of Jesus, but they serve Jesus. Worship and service go together. What we worship, we will obey. And the angels obey the commands of the king. And they seek to do his will. An angel means a messenger or servant, and they're subordinate to him. King Jesus is not subordinate to any angel. And so Jesus Christ has the greater honor. We see in verses 8 and 9 that Jesus has the greater throne. Third point, reason why Jesus is greater than angels. He has a greater throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment because something happened this week that that really brought this to the forefront of some of my studies in this in a real way. In, In some ways, we can all be building a throne. Our own throne, the throne of somebody else, whether it's a company we work for or or a plan that we have, or a person that we love. We, we can all be working towards the advancement of a throne. And, and so this week, earlier, uh, Hugh Hefner died at age 91. And he sat on the throne. He sat on a throne. It wasn't with uprightness and righteousness that Hugh Hefner sat on that throne. No, he got there by wickedness. And, and I watched how he was eulogized in the media and by celebrities. And how this, this man, Hugh Hefner, was brought to a place of almost an idol of worship. You know, this guy lived the greatest life. He, 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 he lived the dream. And how did he use that? He, well, he, he brought pornography from the back alley into the living room. He made it respectable. The objectification of women. And for 91 years... He was building his throne. And and let me tell you this, that there is another throne that was created and a throne that has actually taken a lot less time to build, but is eternal. Jesus Christ lived for 33 years. Jesus Christ didn't have a, a, a pillow to lay his head, he says. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But Jesus Christ ruled with uprightness and righteousness. And his scepter is a scepter of goodness and mercy and justice. And because his scepter is a scepter of justice, the one who was on Hugh Hefner's throne is actually on his knees bowed before the king. And I don't believe that Hugh Hefner had any inclination that one day he would be bowed before his maker, and be held to account for his unrighteousness. But this text says us that every throne will be bowed down before him. And so that means that the thrones that we are living for, 
the thrones that we are building, are they as, are they as mighty and powerful as this one? Are they as just as this one? And then finally, am I going to be judged for the throne that I am building and be condemned for it like you, Hefner, was condemned? Now, some of you might ask the question, how can you judge him, Ryan? How can you judge Hugh Hefner? You don't have any idea of what was going on in his heart. You don't have any idea of what was going on in his life. And, and I tell you, I'm not his judge. The Bible, the Word of God speaks it over him. And so he entered into judgment and condemnation, not off of what I think, but what off, off of what God has told us is right and good and true. And there have been many who have been led astray under the banner of respectable pornography, which is really just the objectification of men and women in the most horrific ways because it does this inner working of our hearts that causes us to feel dirty, disgusting, because God made us first for himself and then one another. And he made the human body to be beautiful, but beautiful in the right relationships that he has established biblically. And that's what we walk in. And that's the truth that we walk in. And we see that his scepter of righteousness is one of purity and goodness and beauty. And his scepter of righteousness is also one of judgment for the unrighteous. And so I want to live in the righteousness of God in all that I say and do. I want to love righteousness and hate wickedness. Number four, he is the king with a greater reign. Number four, he is the king with a greater reign. Jesus is greater than angels because he has a greater reign. Earlier I said that he has no beginning and no end. But I also tell you, friends, that his reign is forever. Alexander the Great, who is considered one of the, the most amazing conquerors that this world has ever seen, he conquered the known world by the age of 32. And Alexander the Great, in all his greatness, was brought down by what was believed to be malaria, meaning that he was bit by a mosquito and taken out. Jesus' reign has no end. I really hope this is causing us to say deep within, I want to be connected to that reign. I want to be connected to his. Like, why am I living for myself? Why am I so concerned about even our nation and how long our nation exists? And friends, I am not saying that to the detriment of the United States of America because I want to say wholeheartedly, God bless this nation, but it has a beginning and it has an end, but Jesus Christ rules and reigns forever, so I will not let my life be lived solely for a nation, but God's nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation who he has purchased out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I want to be connected to that reign and that reign forever. And his reign is forever. And so you can be in power today, but that power has a shelf life. It's got an expiration date. And, and, and why are we so consumed by it? God, listen, God has gifted so many of you to do so many amazing things. And those are so many 
good and great things. But I'm telling you, God wired you that way so that you can bring glory and honor to Him. If you are a business owner, if you are a manager, if you are an employee, if you are a volunteer in the church, if you are a stay-at-home mom and you are laboring alongside of your kids, it is all to advance the reign of Christ and His rule in every crack and crevice of the world that God has given you to inhabit. And that we would be connected to that reign. Crosspoint downtown, that's why we exist. That's why we exist. And we may be a small band of ragtag believers that think, what can God accomplish through me? I'm telling you, the group of people that sat in the upper room in Jerusalem when the church was set afire may have believed the same thing. And you know what God did? He built the church on their brokenness and gave His grace to do His will. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth from the, in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears have no end. All the rains that have come and gone from this world are like a shirt that you just throw in the dirty hamper. Like a shirt that will find itself in a thrift store and it has a shelf life. But no, no. The reign of Christ is the reign of substance. It is the reign for all of eternity. For to which angel has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There is no angel that stands above all the enemies of God. But Jesus Christ does. When the, 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 this here is referenced from Psalm 110. And the reference from Psalm 110 is this imagery of the conquering king who has his heel over the neck of all of his enemies while they're looking up at him. He is looking down at them in victory. And that is the placement of the Son of God is to look down on every and all of his enemies in victory. How do you know that your reign is forever? Well, you have no enemies. Well, that's the promise of God the Father to God the Son, is that God the Son will have no enemies because I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this leads me to our application. So what? Angels, like the name of Jesus, you've got the, you've got the honor of Jesus, you have the throne of Jesus, And you have the reign of Jesus. What does it matter for me? So what? Well, let me break this down real simple for you. Let's go with the name. The name of Jesus. What does it mean for you that the name of Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal God for our lives? Well, it means that you confess Him. What's the name that you confess? Will you confess Jesus as Lord of your life? Will you confess that He is the one that is in complete control of all of the universe, your life included? Will you confess that? And you know why that's really important? Because sin has belittled the name of Jesus in your life and in mine. And we have to admit that. Sin has taken the name of Jesus and it's made it something else. And has elevated something to the place of greatness that does not belong. So right now, we can confess the name that is above all names. Matt Chandler says, God's response to the belittling 
belittlement of his name from the beginning of time has been the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. Can I just tell you how amazing and freeing that verse is? Because the book of Hebrews was written to a group of drifters that were moving away from God. And you know what God's response to the belittlement of his name was? I'm going to send my son and we're going to put him on the Roman cross. The Romans would declare victory through the cross over their enemies. God used the cross to declare victory over his enemies. Saying that sin is defeated, that death is defeated, and that Satan will be vanquished. The name of Jesus is above all name. Can you confess that name? Number two is, to whom do you honor? To whom do you honor? Who do you worship? Who is worthy of your praise? The angels worshiped Jesus and devoted their life to him. When we honor God, we obey him. We follow his will. We seek his instruction. Like I said, as committed soldiers, he is the one that tells us what we are to do and how we are to do it. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, says everything we do should glorify God. That's what obedience means. Everything. Everything I do, glorifying God. Book of Colossians says whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Obedience. Am I obeying him? Am I falling after his will? Number three, the throne. What does it mean that Jesus is on the throne? Well, it means you have a sympathetic high priest. It means that you have Jesus at the right hand of God the Father and he hears your prayers. You pray. You pray. This week we are praying for Puerto Rico. And I just heard from my friends Eduardo and Natalia, whom I prayed for, that, that our family is okay. And when they say their family's okay, it means they're alive. It also means that they're waiting in line for hours for water and gas and all of those things. But I want to tell you, Eduardo, I want to tell you, Jesus is on the throne. And so we can keep going to him in prayer. And we can know that he listens to us better than FEMA or anybody else. And thank God for that because we bow our knees to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when he is on his knees and comes face to face with God. If you want to be brought to a place of, of prominence before God, well, go down on your knees and humbly become a beggar and rely on him. Is that too far above you to go down on your knees and pray before him? May you be humbled to ask God and rely upon him to give you all that you need for this life and the life to come. And then finally, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is reigning right now? It means that we trust him. Russell Moore prayed this prayer at a conference that I was at, and it was so simple. He said, God, help me love you more than I love certainty. God, help me love you more than I love certainty. Man, I love certainty. I really do. I really want to know that tomorrow is going to be there, and next month is going to be there, and everything's going to be okay, and the next year is going to be there, and everything's going to be okay. That's what the, the people in Hebrews wanted. They wanted certainty for tomorrow. There's no greater certainty than realizing that Jesus' reign is forever. 
You know, we had the, the, the cone of uncertainty during Hurricane Irma, and it went all over the place. Like, you had all these, these lines of predictions of where this thing was going to go, and, and we know on Friday it was supposed to go here, and on this day it was supposed to go here, and it was just all over the place. And, 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 and within that, we were living in the cone of uncertainty. And I'm telling you, that's life. Life is living in the cone of uncertainty. But living in the cone of uncertainty as a Christian means that we trust in God's sovereign reign. That God has promised tomorrow and the promise exists in His Son, Jesus Christ, with whom He has signed, sealed, and delivered us our future. And we trust in His reign and rule. God will come through. That, that's, that's worth an amen, Randall. That's, can I get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. Can we trust Him? Can we confess His name? Can we worship Him as worthy and obey Him? Can we bow our knees to King Jesus in prayer, knowing that He is at the right hand of the majesty on high? And finally, can we trust Him with tomorrow? Because we know that even though tomorrow might not be there for us, it's there for Him, and we will be with Him as much as we are with Him today forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. Mm, that we can commit to You. And God, we don't have to try very hard. We don't have to do all the right things, Lord. Committing to You means that we just confess that you've committed to us and your son. Committed soldiers, God, they believe what they believe because because of the honor that you've given them. Because of the dignity and worth and value. And so God, we come committed because of the honor you've given us and the honor of the son. Because your worth and value is insurmountable. We bow our knees before you in humble reliance, in humble repentance, and we walk in you in Christ's name. The church says, Amen. Stand with me. We're going to take communion. And as we take communion, it's a confessing of the name of Jesus. Communion is obeying the wondrous works of God through his law, saying, I'm I'm going to do what you tell me to do and taking this bread and dipping this cup is an act of obedience. Communion is a prayer saying that, thank you, God, what you've done for me, what I cannot do for myself. And communion is declaring that our trust is in him. So remember those things as you come to the table, breaking that bread that was broken for you and the blood that was shed. Let's go to the table together.